Thank you, and once again, good day to students and teachers of the Word of God. Our lesson this week deals with the grace of giving, one of the practical aspects of theology which comes under our study of practical theology. For about ten weeks now, we've been studying these practical subjects to deal with the application of dogmatic and systematic theology to the life of the believer. Never forgetting, of course, that doctrinal exactness and doctrinal correctness is always first, that God is always first, and God's Word is always second. Uh, the idea of putting people ahead of God is satanic, and the idea of putting human feeling and human emotion or human experience ahead of God's Word is also satanic. And both these satanic philosophies, of course, are found in the modern Laodicean church period. When we speak of the Laodicean church period, we're, of course, talking about the end-time church, the churches on this earth before Christ comes back, which is the phoniest, most shallow church of the entire set of seven. The way to spot the modern Laodicean fundamentalists is by his attitude toward revival and Bible truth in the end times. At the close of the earth church age, the age ends in apostasy, as all ages end in apostasy. And if you find people talking about a great revival speaking the land, the spreading out of the gospel and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the last days and all that nonsense, you know you're dealing with a Christian who has been listening to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. The pouring out of the Spirit of the last days in Joel in the book of Acts is the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh in the millennium after the second advent of Jesus Christ. And the nonsensical teaching of this pouring out of the Spirit occurs at the end of the church age is a violation of every major Bible precept taught in either testament. If there's one thing the Bible makes clear, and it makes several things very clear, too clear for some people's comfort, if there's one thing the Bible makes clear, it makes it clear that every age ends in apostasy. That is a Bible doctrine that ranks for the virgin birth of Christ and the deity of Christ as a fundamental of the faith. I'll give ten examples briefly. Man and woman started out with a perfect environment and a perfect heredity. You know how that age ended? It ended in Genesis 3 with disobeying God. Given divine protection of God and the promise of a messianic seed, the age that went from Genesis 3, the time of the flood, ended in murder, polygamy, fallen angels going after strange flesh, and the corruption of animals in the worship service under the form of bestiality. God gave him a fresh chance to command the boat, and took his family with him, got him out of the boat, gave him three continents to run, with nobody around to harass him and bother him, no civilization to give him a hard time. He was drunk in less than five years. There isn't a case in the Bible where an age ever ends for the revival. The church age is now ending in preparation for Daniel's 70th week, the time of Jacob's trouble. And to teach that this age ends in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is blasphemy. There isn't one age in the Bible that ever ended in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in the last days in Acts 2 and Joel 2 is a reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the millennium, following the advent of Christ. And this is why Simon Peter is preaching the advent of Christ in Acts 2 and quoting an advent book, Joel, not a church-age book. As a matter of fact, when Simon Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, no church-age books have been written. Now, this is very important to understand because it means that the modern apostate fundamentalist has the accent on four or five things taken out of the Bible instead of the Bible. The modern charismatic has the accent on the 
experience and feeling and emotions of the believer instead of God himself being first, and the modern people talk about revival, are going into apostasy while they talk. So for this reason, we've spent at least 80 lessons trying to root and ground the believer in the solid doctrines of biblical and systematic theology. Having come now a good distance since our first lessons on uh, the deity of Christ and the Trinity from 97 lessons ago, we're now dealing with practical aspects of the Christian life. On today's broadcast, we take up this matter of giving, which is called a grace in 2 Corinthians 8, 7. Paul says, Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance, and knowledge and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. The context shows that this particular grace is not the grace of God that bringeth salvation. It's the grace of giving. Now, giving is supposed to be characteristic of Christian living throughout the entire year. Some people make Christmas the time of giving. Commercialization has almost ruined Christmas with stores and advertising. And many uh, people, the spirit of Christmas is lost, uh, for the attitude is to receive gifts instead of giving and honoring the Savior on his birthday. The first Christmas was marked by giving. God the Father gave the gift of his only begotten Son to this world, and he later gave his life. In a celebration commemoration of this, it is good for us to give, but we ought to remember that it is more blessed to give than to receive, Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Now, giving is so characteristic of Christian life that it should characterize the Christian life from start to finish. For example, the Christian should give liberally of his money, for God loveth a cheerful giver, and he should give liberally and above the tithe, for if he reaps uh, so sparingly, he reaps sparingly, but if he sows abundantly, he'll reap abundantly. If Abraham gave the tithe under grace before the law, certainly the Christian can give the tithe under grace after the law. The Christian life should be characterized by generous giving, giving not only of the tithe, but offerings above the tithe, giving not only of his money, but his time and his talent and his family, giving not only all these things, but giving forgiveness to his enemies, giving forgiveness to those that abuse him and misuse him, are giving back good for evil instead of evil for evil. Now, one may say that giving is the most expressive word of the entire Christian life, giving the gospel to sinners, giving his time to minister to other Christians. Giving is the word. When General William Booth one year was asked to send out a table, cablegram to all the members of the Salvation Army, which back in those days was a Bible-believing outfit engaged in the soul winning, General Booth sent out one word nationwide in that cablegram. It simply said, others, others. The way you mark children is their self-centeredness. The way you mark the adult is his concern for others. Now, I'm not talking about the big father governmental concern which takes money out of your pocket to feed itself while it's feeding other people or trying to find people to use as an alibi to get more money. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about concern for others. I'm not talking about organizations such as the NACP and the National Education Association and UNESCO and the United Nations that are gathered together for the purpose of making a living off people who work. I'm not talking about that. When I'm talking about concern for others, I'm talking about a genuine concern for individuals where an individual gives of his time and money to help an individual. I'm not talking about corporate socialism where you pretend to be concerned about the oppressed minorities and ecological problem in an effort to pass government laws to take away freedoms from Americans. I'm not talking about that. 
I think we all recognize the fact now that 90% of the congressmen are communist in the ideology, even though they don't hold a card. We no longer have to have a House Un-American Activities Committee bait communists. The facts remain that communism is the philosophy taught in every public school system in America. Matters the sky is a socialism. But who's trying to kid who? I mean, who doesn't know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You don't have to carry a card to be a communist. You don't have to be a member of the commander, and all you have to do is believe in evolution, believe in dialectical materialism, and be in favor of the government controlling every aspect of life. That's what a communist is. Now, whether you call it socialism or fascism or Catholicism or something else is immaterial. They're all the same system. The system that would put you in jail and take your property and persecute your family and shut up your Bible and tax you to death are all the same system. The various names for it. Now, we bring this up because when we're talking about giving here in this lesson, we're not talking about the corporate giving by oppressing people and taking their liberties from them to as a, uh, using uh, the alibi of folks needing help as the means for robbing other people. We're not talking about that. I mean, the little do-gooders trying to get their way to heaven by corporate giving are always golden rule Sermon on the Mount people who have applied the individual teachings of the Bible individuals to masses. And these people are always concerned about the oppressed minorities and the rights of the people. Have you ever noticed they're ever concerned about their own sins? Have you ever noticed that? The people who always engage in the great crusade for the masses are always the people that have the littlest to say about the moral conduct of the individual. Have you ever noticed that? Now, I believe we talk about giving and Christian giving. We perhaps can learn a lesson by studying in Matthew chapter 2 what the wise men gave. In the story of the wise men, we can find a beautiful progression of the grace of giving. First of all, seeking. They saw the star in the sky and gave up their homes to go and follow it. Finding. They went to Jerusalem and took time out to inquire of Herod where the baby was. Worshiping. They came on their knees and fell before the Savior when he was about two years old, and then they gave. After worship, or as a part of their worship, they gave their gifts. Now, this is very interesting because it shows the sinner seeking, finding, worshiping, giving. And this, of course, is the proper order for the sinner who finds Christ. The unsaved man should seek to find God. He should find God the Savior and worship him when he finds him, and his worship should be manifest by freely giving to that Savior. After worship, or as a part of worship, they gave their gifts. The gifts the wise men gave were very interesting. They were gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The gold was a tribute to a king. The frankincense was a gift to a priest, and the myrrh was a gift to a prophet. The gold was given because it's the highest thing in this earth, therefore it is fitting to give to the king of kings. The frankincense is plainly a type of prayer that a priest offered up, according to the book of Revelation, according to Luke chapter 1. They acknowledge Jesus Christ's priesthood as priest of priests. The myrrh was used in embalming. It's a bitter herb, and this tribute was given to the suffering Savior to show that he would die on the cross, and there, by the way, he received myrrh, or was at least offered myrrh, mixed with wine in Mark 15, verse 23. So the bitter things were given to Christ, the royal things were given to Christ, 
and the religious things were given to Christ. Now, what should the Christian give? First of all, absolutely necessary, the first item you should give the Lord has been carefully covered up by every major evangelist in the United States. It's your body. In order to deprive you of your consecration and sanctification, every major evangelist and preacher in the United States has been talking about letting Christ come into your life. That's a satanic counterfeit. God doesn't want your life. He wants your body. If he has your body, he has your life. And the only part of your life he doesn't have is when he doesn't control your body. Do you understand? For this reason, the evangelist has been going up talking about letting Christ come into your life and sharing your life with Christ, which practically means absolutely nothing. If the Holy Spirit is not in your body and doesn't have possession of your body, that much of your body and that much of your life is your life or the devil's life, even when you're acknowledging Christ. The part of you that Christ doesn't control, either you control or Satan controls. Is that clear? The part of you the Holy Spirit of God doesn't control, either Satan controls or you control. So the first thing you should give is never your life. The first thing you should give is stated as follows. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The Macedonian in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, first gave their own selves to the Lord. The Lord is in the devil's life, but he's not in the devil's body. The Lord eventually gets mixed up in the life of everything in this earth. Because as a providential, divine creator, he has charge of all life and death on this earth. But to say that God himself is active in the body of Satan as a controlling force is nonsense. Therefore, simply because a Christian lets Christ into his life in one or two places where he thinks he can get him without doing any damage, that doesn't even mean that such a Christian is even a saved man. A man isn't saved until he's been reborn by the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit is indwelling his body in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that saved man has given nothing to God until he's taken his members, his arms, his legs, his eyes, nose, ears, throat, mouth, tongue, lips, teeth, and jaw, and given them to Jesus Christ. You see, where's that found? That is the entire subject of Romans chapter 6. Read it. And it is the subject of Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 4. Read it. If you haven't given your body to God, you haven't given anything to God that he asked for properly. God wants your body. What Paul says to the demoniac charismatics in Corinth who were going to bed with their own mothers and bragging about their gifts, what? No, get out your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Here's a bunch of people bragging about their gifts and didn't even know their body was the temple of the Holy Ghost. Isn't that something? They go around talking about the baptism in the Spirit, you know, which which doesn't occur anywhere except in new translations. <laughs> They're no such thing. Silly, the Greek word preposition in is never translated as in, unless it's in the locative case referring to location. I mean, who didn't know that? 
baptism in the Spirit. <laughs> oh, sure, man. That bunch you were talking about that didn't even know their bodies were the temple of the Holy Ghost. Do you know why? Because their bodies in 1 Corinthians were being used for drunkenness, chapter 11, long hair, chapter 10 and 11, and fornication, chapter 5. They let Christ come into their life, but he didn't have the bodies. And Paul had to tell that carnal bunch of charismatics, you're not your own, you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and the spirit, which are God's. Now, first of all, we give our bodies to God. If that hasn't been done, then the rest doesn't count. After that, ourselves hold to the things of God. In 1 Timothy 4.15, the young preacher was told to meditate upon these things and give himself wholly to them. The things he was told to give himself wholly to were certainly not giving and loving and making peace for the brethren. He was certainly not told to give himself wholly to prayer in the passage. It's amazing how little people know about the Bible when you put them on the on the spot about it, because the average Christian today has no Bible. He has what he calls a reliable translation. And consequently, when you talk about the Bible, he doesn't know what you're talking about. In First Timothy chapter 4, 15, do you know what Timothy was told to give himself wholly to and told to meditate upon? Well, he was told this. He was told to give himself wholly and meditate upon the following things. To give attendance to reading, exhortation, and doctrine, and neglect not the gift that God gave him, and to be an example of the believer in word, conversation, charity, spirit, faith, and purity. He was told to give attendance to reading and doctrine. Is that what you attend upon? Give attendance to the reading of the word. First Timothy 4.13. Paul said, Till I come, give attendance to reading, exhortation, doctrine. Then he should give himself to prayer, Acts 6.4. We will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the Word. If a man has been called as a minister, then his life has been blocked off to two things, prayer and the ministry of the Word. That is for a full-time minister, in this case a full-time apostle. What else should he give? He should give thanks for everything, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. He should give money to the Lord, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 to 4. The Macedonians, out of their deep poverty, gave liberally to the Lord, and Paul accepted the gift as an act of fellowship. Now, how are we to give to the Lord? All right, first of all, systematically. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Paul said, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in the store as God hath prospered him. Not only giving at Christmas time, but every week of 52 in the year. Be businesslike in your giving, but be careful to keep accounts and make sure that you give to God every week without failing a week upon the first day of the week, put by you as God hath prospered you individually. First Corinthians 6.2, let every one of you lay by him in store, not only the head of the home, but the mother and the children. Giving is not just for the rich, giving is for the poor also. The only difference will be in the size and quality of the gift. Proportionately, 1 Corinthians 16, do as God hath prospered. Now, if you're going to figure out a proportion, the Holy Spirit has already done it for you, because long before the Old Testament law was given, you were told that a man saved by grace through faith gave a tithe. Abraham tithed before the law. Jacob tithed before the law. The Jews tithed under the law. So you know what the proportion is. 
the minimum proportion is a tenth. In the Old Testament, under the law, they gave a tithe, one-tenth of their income. Before the Old Testament law under grace, Abraham and Jacob gave the tithe, a tenth of their income. The tithe was holy to the Lord and did not belong to the person. Now, we're not under the law today. We're not forced to tithe, but we under grace should be able to give more than a person under love. Personally, I think you will find that if you give above the tithe, God will continue to bless you spiritually in every other way. R.G. LeCurnel gave 10%, and then as God prospered him, he increased the gift to 20%, and now R.G. LeCurnel gives higher than 50%. God gives abundantly to those who give to him, and the thing for you to do is prove God daily in this matter. I can talk to you all I want to about uh, the grace of giving and the goodness of God, but you cannot prove him till you've proved him yourself. Up and down this country, one of the most famous preacher's cliches is, no man can outgive God. And I believe that, and you believe that, at least we say we do. Have you ever tried it? You see how the snow drifts? People say all kinds of things. People say, I don't believe any man can outgive God. Well, of course he can't. Do you think God would let you be more blessed than he is? The Bible says it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you think God will let you outdo him in giving a blessing? If it is more blessed to give than to receive, do you think God will let you outdo him in giving? Why, of course not. You ever try it? I'll tell you, brethren, an awful lot of hot air goes across the pulpit these days. You ever try to outgive God? Why don't you try it? For two months, give 10%, and the next two months, give 15%. The next two months, give 20%. The next two months, give 25%. And watch what happens to your income. Boy, now, that takes some guts, wouldn't it? Excuse me, Christian courage for you Girl Scouts. I forgot we have some tender feet out here that have been to Christian schools. Now, wouldn't that take something? Now, we should give cheerfully, not only proportionally, not only systematically, not only individually, but cheerfully. Second Corinthians 9, 7 says, God loveth a cheerful giver. You shouldn't have the attitude, there's that collection plate again, do I have to give something? You ought to count it a great privilege and a joy to be able to give something back to somebody who gives so much to you. After all, if you have health, where'd you get it from? If you have a good job, where'd you get it from? The government? Why do you realize God can pull up any government he wants to in 24 hours? He's been doing it for 5,000 years. If you have good looks, who gave them to you? If your family is saved, who saved them? Now, how could you be stingy in view of that? God loves the one that gives willingly and cheerfully. We like to receive gifts that have been cheerfully given to us, not grudgingly. Give cheerfully. Give as Christ gave. Christ gave everything he had, even life itself. Give sacrificially, like the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 8, 2, the Christians there put their offering in out of their deep poverty. The widow gave two mites, which was all her living. God measures gifts by how much is left, not by how much we give. God sees the heart of the giver rather than the size of the gift. So let us give gladly and cheerfully, and let us give often. Now, I've often wondered about these things. My personal testimony is this. I was tithing before I was saved. As a member of the Roman Catholic Church, attending Mass and crossing myself in the Angelus, you know, and 
putting the ash on my forehead and taking the palm leaf home and all that bit. I've considered tithing as part of salvation. So I was tithing months before I became a Christian. After I became a Christian, was saved by grace through faith, I kind of had a little libertine time there where I quit tithing. My food ran out, my money ran out, and I was three days with nothing to eat. Because some Christian left a bag of groceries on the doorstep. I learned one lesson that when God gives me some money, a tenth of it's his. From that time to this, I've always tithed and always given above the tithe. I must confess before the microphone today, and I want to say it humbly with the grace of God, and to say it Lord willing, and to say it God willing, and to saying it giving credit and glory to God absolutely and completely, that at this date my bills are paid, the school is in the black financially, nothing in the red. The church is in the black financially, nothing in the red. Our bills are all paid to date, and there's money in the bank. Now, I realize God could turn us over the devil like he did Job and strip us dry, but isn't it wonderful that he hasn't? And view the fact that he hasn't, how much we owe him. I don't know how you are about these things, but this I am about these things. I've observed the people that help out the most and usually help out with the most are just common, ordinary, everyday Christians. Last year here at school, I had one of the most, uh, well, I don't exactly know how to describe it as an experience. One of the most shocking things ever happened to me, I had my students buy match luggage for me and a round-trip plane ticket for a vacation in Germany. I haven't had a vacation for 35 years. You know what's so shocking about that? I mean, some of you people would never understand it. That gift was given by kids who, some of them, ate peanut butter for seven months for meals because they couldn't afford good food. That offering was taken up from kids who had cars break down and had to walk and couldn't get the cars fixed, from kids who had three and four children to support at $2.60 an hour, and some of them had their children die at birth. I can't tell you what that gift means to me. I know how much it meant to God. And it's a strange thing. About three years ago, I was going to try to buy a second-hand truck. I needed $600. I contacted one of the richest Christians in Northwest Florida, who was a saved Bible teacher, and asked that person if they could loan me $600 at small interest, 2%, instead of 6 or 8 They told me they never made personal loans. That particular Christian is worth more than a half a million dollars. And while I was trying to get $600 from that rich Christian who'd been using my tapes and books for 20 years in Bible teaching, there was a young Christian who worked for a telephone company who wanted to give me the money out of his pocket. I'll never understand that. But I guess the Lord does. Our gifts, though small, delight the heart of the Father in heaven. Blessings follow generous giving to the Lord. The blessing is not always material abundance, though many times it is. If you faithfully tithe on the best you can, the Lord's going to bless you. And he certainly will. Paul said, The thing which was sent from you is an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Christ said, Lay up your treasures in heaven. Give to the poor Christians, the needy Christians. Give to the orphans and widows who are Christians. Give to the needs of your church and its services 
and give for the spread of the gospel to the end of the earth. If you can't go give, if you can't give, pray. If you haven't got something to give, pray and ask God to give you something to give. And when he gives to you, give back liberally and cheerfully, for God loveth a cheerful giver.